motivating employees, the biblical record. I'm very excited about this topic. It's something that I cover with my students. It's something that every manager deals with and faces. Uh, if, if you don't have some feelings, emotion toward uh, motivating employees, you probably haven't been in charge of an organization or a department. You probably have never felt the, the, the pull of competition, your, your competitors. Probably not fully engaged as a leader. If you haven't sensed this, this need, this desire, what can we do to motivate employees? Can we do something? Can we, mainly leaders in the organization, can we do something else to get maybe more consistent performance or maybe higher performance from our workers? I want to explore with you this afternoon the, what's the biblical perspective, and then we're going to take a really flying trip through. I mean, it's going to be really lickety-split, flying trip through some of the contemporary research and findings as well. So let's go. You ready? How about over here? You all ready? Okay, buckle up because this is going to go, this is going to go fast. First of all, the, we're going to explore the biblical record first. And starting with that, the purpose. What would be the point of motivation? Okay, this is like a fundamental question. What would be the point of it all? Well, in Scripture, the scriptural perspective is the point of anything that we would do socially with each other on this, on this planet is to experience God's plan for a flourishing life of well-being in the community. Key phrase, in the community. And flourishing life in all its dimensions, starting, of course, with our relationship with God. Physical well-being, mental health, social harmony, even international peace, and yes, including economic prosperity. That actually is a scriptural principle. And I'm going to take just a few minutes to, to try to explain to you. This is, it's related to motivation, but it's also related to lots of other topics in business. The, the true biblical idea of, the, of prosperity theology. You know, so there are some television evangelists that talk about the prosperity we call it the prosperity gospel. Have you heard this discussion sometime, the prosperity gospel? If you, if you just have faith in Jesus, he is going to make you wealthy. All of the hopes and dreams that you have. Have you heard that? You've heard that. I could probably get on a television evangelism and do this right now. I can, I can feel the energy right now. Can't you feel that? I believe in prosperity theology, but not like it's top, typically talked about by the late night television evangelists. So we're going to spend just a couple of minutes exploring that. To think about and talk about motivation, we've got to start in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is the foundation. In, in this section of Scripture, we find the foundation ideas. Here are a few passages related to this. 
Psalm 34, 14. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, the Hebrew words there are pretty strong. Make peace run from you. You're going to come after it so strong, it's going to try to run away from you. You're going to pursue it, though. You're going to pursue peace. That's the English word, peace, but the Hebrew word, shalom. God's plan, his desire, and David is trying to express that. We should be pursuing this idea of shalom, this multidimensional, well, flourishing well-being of life. If there's anything motivational in Scripture, this is the foundation for it. Shalom. I was talking with my friend Mike Tillet, uh about this passage from Jeremiah. I think it was yesterday, Mike. This passage from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is talking to the exiles who were in Babylon. Seek the shalom of the city, and in parentheses we can add Babylon, where I have sent you into exile and pray the Lord on, it, on its behalf for in its shalom you will have shalom. Pray for the prosperity of your captors because in their prosperity you will experience prosperity. Pray for the physical health of your captors because in their physical, you will experience that. Pray for the flourishing life of the people who are taking you, have taken you to captivity. It's in the New Testament, too. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Pursue it. And look at this passage from Psalm 119. Oh, this is, a, this is one of my favorites. Those who love thy law have great shalom. If you want a flourishing life of well-being, it's in God's covenant principles. Love those principles, and you're going to have... Now, we usually read this from an individualistic point of view. If you, Mike love the law, you will have peace. If you, Alan, this is how we read these things, right? Generally speaking. And sure, we, can, we should read the scripture with that. It, the scripture's message is to each one of us individually. But the interesting thing about this concept of shalom is it's a community idea, a communal concept primarily. But doesn't forget the individual dimension as well. But it's primarily communal in nature. Oh, have you ever wondered how to interpret these verses? He will prosper you and multiply you. That's a pretty direct statement, right? The Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand. How more specific can you get? He who trusts in the Lord will prosper. I pray in all respects that you may prosper. That's in John, 3 John. How do you interpret these? Oh, here's another one. It's even more specific and pointed. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. There's the prosperity verse from the scripture, right? So how do we interpret this? I was baffled by these, these verses for years until I understood the key. 
in Scripture, prosperity equals shalom. But, pros but shalom is a multidimensional concept. It's not just economic or financial. No, no, no. Spiritual, physical health, mental health, social harmony, international peace, and yes, of course, economic well-being. But you try to isolate the economic peace away from the shalom and you don't have shalom anymore. True prosperity, true prosperity in the scripture thinking is communal in nature and multidimensional. Economic prosperity cannot be isolated from the other dimensions. Now, you know, one of the keys to understanding Bible prophecy is the year-day principle, right? Hello? Right? Okay. Okay, just checking to see. Very good. Shalom is the key to understanding the scripture conversation about wealth and prosperity. That if you don't get the shalom piece, you don't get the scripture message about prosperity. And you, all kinds of evil interpretations and weird mental gymnastics come out of the scripture to, to try to, or people's minds to try to explain scripture if you don't get the shalom piece to it. This is absolutely fundamental and crucial. By the way, it's also a key to understanding the work of Jesus Christ, who is the prince of shalom. And in the New Testament, who it, Paul, the apostle, said Jesus is our peace. Well, with that foundation, we look at motivation of Scripture, and we see that motivation is a matter of the heart. The heart, and, and in, uh, if you look at the, the Hebrew word for heart and the, the basic ideas, it's almost as if the ancient Hebrew said there's a little man inside of you, a little person. The whole person is inside you. Because it's in the heart, or at the heart, where all of a decision-making reflection, choices that we make, and motivations. So we should watch over our heart with, with all diligence because it's out of the heart that the actions flow. You want workers who, who have sustained performance, the Bible's perspective is it's going to come out of the heart. And out of, a, out of the heart, who has been attracted to this concept of shalom, communal shalom, in other words, workers who say, you know, we're, we're in this organization not just for the sake of this organization, but we want to help the larger community as a result of our work. Much bigger goal here at stake. Much bigger goal. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Oh, look at this one from Proverbs. Sol Solomon was a, was a manager of a really big organization, all right? Really big one. And he was also had a reflective kind of mind, too. He reflected on these, his experiences. And then he wrote some of these down in Proverbs. Some of these scholars believe he wrote for his son, who was destined to follow him on the throne. So similar to, if that is true, and I, I believe it's possible, similar to the ancient Egyptian writings, where the father would write instructions for, for the son in kind of the first schools of management way back then, Solomon had one of the first textbooks of management. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. Now, here's a discussion about motivation and incentives. 
There's a true and there's a false kind of reward. The true reward is lined up under shalom, righteousness. But the false reward, deceptive wages, comes to those who are following opposite. In, in, in Proverbs and other places, we get, we, we get this contrast between the wicked person and the, one who, the righteous person. It's Solomon's way to discuss the great conflict, the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Well, motives are a matter of the heart. Motives are just one of the many functions of the heart because it's in the heart where we think and contemplate, we discern, we judge, we plan, we make moral choices. The great work that all of us need to be accomplished in us is the restoration of God's image, starting with our hearts. Notice what it says, what David says in Psalms, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring. We're coming back down to this idea of covenantal living, covenant principles. By the way, the covenant is sometimes called in uh, the prophets the covenant of shalom. The covenant of shalom. God's law is like a prescription for a, a life of flourishing well-being. Not just individually. Oh, no, no. For the community. It's a community focus again. Okay? It's the heart that needs transformation. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. We see this both the Old and the New Testament. I wish I had time. I need about four hours to talk about this chart here. But here are some of the great themes of Scripture that can be taken into the heart that are, have transforming power in our lives. Each of these themes describes a facet of Jesus Christ and His work. Each of these themes describe a facet of God's character, and each of these themes describes something that the Bible says we should do. We should pursue, just to make the shalom connection again, we are asked to pursue shalom. God's throne is based on shalom, and Jesus is called our Prince of Shalom. See how those three things connect what our behavior ought to be like, who Jesus is, and, and God's character. It takes about three hours to go through this, so I've got to move on. The, the three things that connect these themes, uh, explicit instruction in the Scripture for our behavior, our conduct, like in the Shalom one, pursue it, go after it, right? So that's one of the three. The second of the three is uh, the, it's identified with Jesus Christ. Jesus is our peace. And thirdly, a facet of the character of God. His throne is based on Shalom and so forth. Based on holiness, based, he created in wisdom and so forth. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We're called to observe the Sabbath and keep it. Right? Okay. The Scripture has many, many wonderful stories. And in some of these stories, we see motives at play. And we see motives in action. But it's interesting that it's the, the behavior we can see told in the story, but you can see the same behavior in more than one story, and you, and you can't draw a firm conclusion just on the behavior. 
there were two women that came to Jesus two different times, okay? That behavior of coming to Jesus and asking, making a request, you say, well, there's some motive behind that. They're trying to accomplish something, right? Each woman had a different request. So just the behavior itself doesn't explain the motive, but when you get into the rest of the story, you're starting to understand, oh, these are different motives. <laughs> One woman comes with a request, we need more power in your kingdom, we the family. The other woman simply says, yeah, my daughter is going to die. She needs your healing power. Both motives quite different in direction. Oh, we see many examples of motives in Scripture. Jacob wanted to save his family from the famine. So he sent his sons into Egypt. Right? They got permission to live in Egypt. They needed food from Egypt. And it just happened to turn out that his son Joseph was in there and in Egypt and, uh, you know, the rest of that story. Right? Jairus des desired healing for his daughter. Queen Esther desired freedom for the Jews. Zacchaeus has an amazing transformation of heart, and without Jesus telling him what he ought to do, he says, I'm going to give back those I've defrauded times X, times two or times four, I forget what it was. So talk about a powerful motive there from the spiritual transformation. In the scripture, we find examples, motives related to physical needs, Motives related to spiritual hunger, Nicodemus, as an example of that. We find stories in Scripture where there were mixed motives. Isn't that true to life? <laughs> mixed motives. We see selfish desires for money. We see the motive of revenge. We see desires for influence and loyalty to family and, and many, many other kinds of things that drive people's behavior to act in certain ways, to persist in actions, to achieve goals. We see cause and effect in Scripture. And some of the most uh, explicit descriptions of this are in terms of agriculture. Okay? Through diligent work, the farmer expects to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Cause and effect. You work hard in your fields, and everything else being equal, you're going to get some harvest to enjoy. You work hard for someone else, and you're going to get wages. To the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as favor, but what's his due? Romans 4. And in Job, one of the speakers in that story talks about the, the hired man who waits for his wages. Of course, we've got the wonderful story of, of uh, oh boy, I'm, I'm blocking, is it Jacob or Laban? Uh, Jacob and Laban, yeah, yeah. Isaac, Jacob, yeah, it's... it's <laughs> uh, working for seven years for Rachel, getting Leah, working for seven more years. Talk about, talk about a powerful motive there. Um, we find in Scripture both intrinsic and extrinsic motives at play. David, the king, offered once to his leaders, military leaders, extrinsic rewards to the successful general who goes and attacks and is successful in this, in this battle. Remember what he promised? Promised very extrinsic, tangible. 
And Joab said, okay, I'm going to try it. <laughs> I'm going to go for this. David actually, in his own experience, had that same kind of an offer from Saul. When he was just a teenager, he shows up at the camp, right? And Goliath is out there taunting them. And, and Saul promises, whoever can do this to this Goliath, you, what do you get? You get my daughter, you get, right? And David said, oh, I'll try for that. Extrinsic rewards. But the scripture also presents intrinsic rewards as well. Keeping the law carries its own spiritual reward. In keeping them, the commandments, there is great reward. Now that's, you could say, well, that's maybe both intrinsic and extrinsic. If you consider shalom, it's all of its fullness, physical health, spiritual health, social harmony, and economic prosperity. Maybe there's an extrinsic dimension to that. But there, in other places in the Psalms and in other writings of Scripture, it's pretty clear that following God and having a close relationship with God, that carries its own reward, just the relationship itself. Has an inherent, I'm not going to use the word, I don't want to use the word payoff, but it has an inherent value to us. I know I'm moving really fast here. Um, Look, oh, this passage from Ecclesiastes is, is amazing. And there, there are three passages in Ecclesiastes, very similar. I just got one of them for, for the time's sake, but here are the other references. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Talk about a paradox here. Enjoyment in backbreaking, burdensome work. <laughs> This also I saw is from the hand of God. And in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, this joy from toil is a gift from God, which suggests to me both intrinsic and extrinsic value here. Spent a couple of minutes on goal setting. Clearly in Scripture, there are, there, we have examples of people setting goals working diligently to achieve those goals. Just a couple of examples here. Certainly in, in God's economy and the great plan of salvation, there's, there's some goal setting going on there, right? We can't miss that one. Uh, in Genesis, though, we get, we get Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, there are some goals offered and presented. Some say this is the first great commission to humans, the first great commission. Rule over the earth but also care for it, right? Serve as a ruler. This is royal language, and some scholars suggest in chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. But in chapter 2, verse 15, now we go to servant kind of language to serve the earth and his needs, to care for the earth. Uh, if you read the Apostle Paul's epistles, the letters to the churches, usually at the beginning or at the end of his, his letters, he will explain, this is my goal for you. This is the goal we ought to all strive for and aspire to. In his letter to Timothy, the goal of his instruction to Timothy is love and pure conscience. Of course, these are familiar passages. I press on towards the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And in Corinthians, he's using the, the uh, illustration of athletes 
run in such a way that you may win. Set a goal, try to win. Oh, remember the story, Matthew 20, the, uh, the farmer who had harvest, it was harvest time, and he, he brought day laborers on in the morning, but they didn't get it all done quick enough, so in the middle of the day he went out and got more workers, right? And then at the end of the day he got more workers. Remember that story, the parable? And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same wage, and what happens? Now you're, you're snickering, what happened? But yeah, they loved it, he says. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yeah, the ones that just worked an hour, they loved it. But the people who'd been there all day, they were a little bit snooty about it, huh? Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've been working all day, and you paid us the same as you paid those folks. That's not right. That's not right. Something's not fair about this, all right? 2,000 years ago, Jesus recognized, and probably common belief, there was awareness that, Equity is really important. If you're not fair, something's going to happen to performance. And there's been some contemporary research that, and there's some big highfalutin university words that are put on that but, and so forth, but we've learned that that actually is true. There are a lot of social influences on our motivations. The scripture talks about this as well. Motivation seldom, if ever, can be isolated from social relationships. In fact, you could say that's probably categorically, how could you ever separate motivation from social relationships? It's almost impossible. The nature of human beings being what it is. Motives occur in the heart, but are also shown in the social activities. And we should be careful with whom we associate. Scripture tells us, watch out who you form relationships with because those people are going to have influence on you. And by the way, watch out that you can form relationships with others because then you can have influence on others too in a positive way. I know I'm flipping through these pretty fast. If you want the PowerPoints, you can send me an email and so forth. Uh, I'll be happy to respond and send this whole PowerPoint to you. Sure, sure. The uh, quickly a very a broader perspective. Now we we looked at shalom as a broad perspective. Now I want to come back to this idea. The scripture perspective is a perspective on all of life lived under God's care and authority. The scripture, especially the ancient Hebrew ideas. You know, the, the ancient Hebrews really didn't have this understanding of, uh, you know, eternal life like we think of it. But they did have an understanding that the community would live on for generations to generations, right? C thinking about it communally from a community point of view. And when you see that, then you say, okay, well, there's only one opportunity when I'm alive on this planet, there's only one opportunity to contribute to this bigger goal of community flourishing life while I'm alive. This is my time in the community. There's this awareness that built, that built in people, that this identity, I'm alive now, I'm in a family structure, I'm in a larger community, I have one chance to serve and, and contribute to community flourishing, and it's while I'm alive. Because of this, I, I, 
I need to work hard, persist in my efforts, okay? You've seen this verse of Scripture. Whatever your hands find to do, verily do it, what? With all your might. Yeah, we usually stop there. We usually stop there. What does the rest of the verse say? Remember? No? It's a good try, though, but thank you. Thanks for playing. Exactly. I use this verse to talk about the state of the dead to business majors and to talk about this importance of contributing to the community and the community well-being. We only have one chance to do that, and it's while we're alive, because there is no activity, there is no planning. These are business words, right? There is no knowledge, there is no wisdom in the grave where you're going. Okay, I'm going to skip that one, come to this final, final slide on the scriptural perspective. There are things more valuable than money. Now, we often talk about in the contemporary world, we talk about money being a motivator and so forth, and we debate whether it really is and, and all that. But in this scripture thinking, there are definitely things more valuable than money. And here are five of them explicitly stated in the Proverbs. Proverbs 23, 23, it says, buy truth and do not sell it. Now, how many people have been to business school in here? If you constantly buy a certain product and never sell it, and you just, like, and, and then you take this over the long term, constantly buying that product, never selling it, you are what? What are we doing? We're what? We're creating a monopoly here. We might even say hoarding it, but we're, the scripture says there's only one thing that we can have a monopoly on, faithfulness. And it's the word translated into English as truth. But it means faithful in action when tested by time and circumstance. Try to outdo each other, compete to be the most faithful person. Whoa. Whoa, not in a pride kind of way. But just in your actions, be, the, be, the more, be more faithful. Buy faithfulness. Don't ever sell it. Keep it. Keep it. Get a monopoly on being faithful. And the, the point is being faithful to your promises to people. Okay? So by that, implicitly I say, okay, that's more important than the money itself. But these others are more explicit. A good name is to be more desired than great riches. Reputation is more valuable than money, right? Wisdom is more precious than jewels. The lips of knowledge are more precious thing. And finally, the precious possession of a man is diligence. Far more important than the money you make is your diligence and working. This is the, these are very touching just the high points. This is some of the elements of the scripture perspective on motivation. Let's move quickly to contemporary research, and I'm going to just fly through some of these. If you haven't been to business school, this is going to just go really fast. If you have been to business school and taken a course in this topic, you're going to quickly see a summary of what you've learned in the past, perhaps. First of all, behaviorism. Uh, B.F. Skinner and other scholars 
the principle is, well, the manager's job is to manage the stimuli that come to the workers and to control the stimuli. If you've got workers that need to be trained in certain skills, behaviorism is one of the great ways to, to increase motivation okay, and performance. Right? And how do you do this? Well, you find things that the workers like and you find the things that the workers don't like. You, when you see certain behaviors that like an like a expression of a skill, they do the, when they do a particular activity or a task really well, then you try to reinforce that by adding some things that they like. Well done, for instance. Just a verbal, if nothing else. A verbal, well done. That's a positive reinforcement, and that tends to strengthen that behavior. Employees more likely to do that again, right? Oh, we could find some things that they don't like and add that when certain behaviors come out and, okay, you're operating this machine, but you weren't using the safety goggles or the safety equipment. Sorry, you're going to have something added that you don't like now because I want you to remember every time you use this machine, you've got to use the safety equipment, right? These things happen in organizations. They're using behaviorism. And so we can, we can reinforce behavior to strengthen it. We can do things that employees don't like, to, as managers, that employees don't like to have done to make certain behaviors go away. I won't take the time to talk about extinction, but anyway, just a quick summary. And, and it works for certain kinds of situations, training in particular, or uh, certain situations that work, like I mentioned, the, the safety gear and so forth. The manager's job is to control the environment, manipulate the stimuli, to identify specific performance standards and behaviors that are desired, establish a base rate of performance, and then reward or punish or manipulate those stimuli to get the performance gradually to increase. Notice the focus, of course, is on the organization's performance and what the organization could get out of this, right? In fact, almost all of the research in the org behavior, organizational behavior world in terms of what is, how do we get employees to motivate? Well, what's the point of the research is to find out how we can get more profit. Higher performance, higher profit in the end. So we're going to select particular reinforcers that are powerful, durable, and reliable. We're going to reinforce the behaviors that we like in the employees, train the skills, measure it, and tell the employees how they're doing. Give them the feedback. Uh, you've probably heard of Abraham Maslow and other scholars that talk about needs. And I, I really need to skip some slides. So I'm going to skip Maslow for right now. And I'm going to go to Douglas McGregor, Theory X, Theory Y. How many have heard of that before? A few of you, yeah. McGregor was a consultant, and he went into organizations, and he observed managers. And he came out of those observation experiences. He said, well, I think there's like two different kinds of managers and what they assume to be true about workers. Some managers assume that workers don't like to work. And so they treat their workers in certain ways. And we call them, he called them Theory X managers. These, these managers were result-driven. They were intolerant of workers. They issue ultimatums to workers, commanding them, punishing them, demanding, overbearing. 
vengeful, these, these kinds of managers assume that people don't like the work, they don't like responsibility, and they have to be driven with a whip in a metaphorical sense. And he saw other managers that behaved quite differently. Managers who gave their workers choices, who kind of said, well, what would you like to do? Here's, here's some things to choose, which would work best for you? Who would like to take responsibility for this project? Assuming that workers like to take responsibility. They like work. And the theory, he called them three Y managers. He came out of that experience believing that theory Y was much better than theory X. And I can remember being in graduate school and learning this in the 1970s. And that was like powerful motivation theory at that point. Uh, unfortunately, since then, the research has, has not been able to empirically prove McGregor's approach. It turns out that life is not quite so simple as these two kinds of managers. Which of you, at some point in the week, have experienced your, in, in your own heart and mind, I don't, I don't like what I'm doing right now. I don't like this. I don't want to do this. In the same week, feeling energized and wanting to take responsibility, it turns out that life is a little more complicated than that and that, that we all experience some of these things and, and if you just have one assumption about workers, well, life isn't that way, right? And I need to move on to Hertzberg and his two-factor theory. Uh, these early researchers, by the way, were building on, on Maslow's needs theory, um, that there were lower level needs of and the higher level needs, and they thought that the higher level needs of, of belonging and, and self-esteem and so forth, that those were more valuable and more uh, prone to help produce higher performance if we emphasize those as managers. Uh, Hertzberg was a clinical uh, mental health worker, and in his clinical work, helping people who had mental health problems, he began to have develop an understanding about life and experiences, he, began, he thought he saw similar kinds of dynamics in organizations. And as he thought about workers, some of which seemed to be very satisfied in their job and other people who, who seemed to be dissatisfied in their jobs, and as he began to talk with them, interview them, and then he engaged with some colleagues and some research, he thought he identified that there is not just one scale of satisfaction at one end and dissatisfaction at the other, that in fact these are two different kinds of scales that can be occurring in the same person at the same time. You could be satisfied with some elements of your job, dissatisfied with other elements of your job at the same time. And so he set about to show this. Job satisfaction, he said, comes from the content of the job itself, the content. If you, and, and the implication is satisfied workers are going to work harder and have more consistently sustained performance, right? That comes from the job content. When workers achieve their goals, interesting how goal setting is even back then, when they get recognition for job well done, 
or when the work itself is challenging and they can achieve and, and accomplish and solve problems, they feel good about it. They like that. Taking responsibility tends to produce satisfaction. And when they get some career advancement opportunities as a result of that, he categorized that as part of the job content. When these, he called the motivating factors, when they're present, you're likely to get improved performance. But job dissatisfaction is not caused by issues in the content, it's caused by a different set of factors. It's the job context, company policies that get in your way as a worker, all the red tape, decision making, kind of makes for dissatisfaction, right? You might like the work, but you hate the red tape. The technical quality of supervision, the interpersonal relationship, especially with your supervisor, that's part of the context of the job. And when your relationship with your boss kind of goes downhill, then you can become dissatisfied even though you like the work. Anybody besides me have experienced that? I'm the only one? Oh, two of us, three of us. Okay, yeah. And Hertzberg called these hygiene factors. When they're missing or inadequate, then you're likely to have some dissatisfaction growing among workers, and dissatisfaction tends to produce lower performance. Hertzberg's theory was pretty powerful and pretty popular. Uh, in fact, wow. I think as late as about 2003, his article from Harvard Business Review was reprinted like the second time, in spite of the fact that researchers, empirical researchers, one by one have been picking off these elements and shown, yeah, that's not always true. <laughs> it's not always true that when the salary is lower than the employee likes, that they're gonna be dissatisfied. It's not always true it's not always true. It can be, but not always. It depends on the situation and the company and the context, the, the marketplace, the industry, and all of that. So one by one, some of the elements, most of the elements of Hertzberg's uh, theory has been, have been shown to be uh, inadequate in terms of exploring or explaining performance. Overall, he says, the manager's job is to provide these hygiene factors Make sure you're paying your workers a fair wage, right? Because if you're not, they're going to become dissatisfied. If you provide for the hygiene factors, the employee won't be dissatisfied. And if you provide the motivators, mostly the intrinsic kinds of things of the job itself, they're going to become satisfied and higher performers. And his big emphasis became on the in intrinsic elements. And that has become his legacy in spite of the fact that uh, his, his research was questioned from a research methods point of view and so forth. Um, there's still a legacy there, in particular the intrinsic nature of the work, which led later researchers then to say, well, let's take a look at job content. If the intrinsic nature of the job itself tends to influence sustained performance by the worker, Let's understand this a little better. What are the elements of the job? And so they call this a job characteristics model. 
Hackman and Olden. And they identified four at first, and then a fifth one later, but four characteristics of any job that tend to uh, produce or promote satisfaction and sustained performance in the worker. This is fascinating, it's very, very useful. First characteristic is autonomy. If the worker believes or has this sense that they are personally responsible for their work, it tends to produce this sense of autonomy, it tends to add to the job content that produces satisfaction and higher performance. If they have a sense that they are, that they have some independence and some freedom to make choices and some discretion, it tends to produce this idea of autonomy and, and they're going to work harder and longer. Task identity. Tasks that have a distinct beginning and an end or tasks that are highly visible that people can see, okay, I started with nothing and now I've got this thing that's assembled, okay? Task identity. Managers, by the way, struggle with this because how do you, what'd you do today, honey? Well, I have no idea. You know, that's, what, that's the manager's lot sometimes. You can't put your hands around. Yeah, you can when you sign a big contract or, you know, big events like that, but the other time, well, I had a bunch of conversations today with people. Oh, that's not very good task identity for managers. But the degree to which you can increase identity, now the worker's starting to feel more satisfied and work harder. Okay? It's interesting to me how God created us with these factors. Let's move to task variety. In particular, the creator, what an amazing thing he's done with the human to create us with the variety of interests and skills and abilities and the different ways we think, the way we can use our brain. It's just amazing, and the more variety that a person, a worker, can, can have in their work, they, the more of themselves they can use to their full capacity, the more satisfied and happy, the more, the stronger they're going to, or uh, the more, the harder they're going to work. Feedback, when people get feedback, when they know where they stand in terms of their own performance, that tends to increase their, their, uh, their performance. Then they added a fifth one later, job significance. When the job has a substantial impact on the lives or work of other people or of customers, that tends to produce higher performance as well. As well. So the, the point here for managers is, okay, what can we do as managers to increase these kinds of things? What can we do? Well, we can form natural work units. We can put workers together in teams, right? This intends to increase task identity and task significance. We can combine tasks to have more variety. This will tend to increase task identity. We can establish client relationships between workers and clients. Because now the worker says, oh, I got to, I'm working for this, this customer. I've got to do a good job more quickly because the customer needs it. Another recommendation by the experts was to load jobs vertically, give workers more management kinds of responsibilities to do. Now, of course, some of the labor unions, they weren't happy with some of these things. They said, well, you're just giving workers more work and you're not paying them anymore for that. In a good attempt 
to increase this sense of, of identity and autonomy and have workers feel good about what they're doing, it could be criticized. Okay. Open the feedback channels, especially those that flow from the job itself. Notice the emphasis on the intrinsic dimension. Where the worker can see right when he or she does the work and they say, oh, that, that's, that's correct. I know it's correct. They get that instant feedback from their, from their work itself, doing the tasks. It's a pretty powerful motivator. Uh, I'm going to actually skip expectancy because we're going to run out of time. Uh, I will touch briefly on equity theory. Uh, Stacey Adams, this goes back to Matthew chapter 20 and the, the parable that Jesus told. Uh, some of you who are supervisors or managers or leaders, you may have experienced this in your career. I know I have in healthcare, where a worker comes to you and say, you know, uh, I've been working here and I, I like my job, but I noticed that someone in another organization is doing the same job I'm doing. They're getting paid a lot more than me, and so I think you need to pay me more. Anybody had that experience besides me? It doesn't have to be just pay. Sometimes it could be other things, you know. What's going on inside the mind and the heart of the worker? Well, the worker is looking at themselves, and they're comparing themselves with the reference person, and they're saying, what do I bring to the job, and what do I get out of it? The output divided by the input, what I bring to it and what I get. And how does that compare with this other person in terms of what they bring to the job and what they're getting out of it? Are these two things equal? All right, that's the big question. Do these things equal? And often it doesn't equal, and that produces some inner, inner tension in their hearts. And they say, well, it should be equal. It's not fair. Well, yeah, right. Actually, we, we could say that this is more a factor of demotivation. Otherwise, they would work, continue their good level of performance. But when they realize or sense that there's a, an inequity, then their performance starts to go down. Good point. Well, how do workers resolve this? Well, there's several ways they can do this. They can resolve this. They could restore actual equity by altering the inputs. I think I'll just work a little less the last hour of the day. Thank you very much. You're not paying me what I'm really worth, so I'm just going to slack off a little bit. Maybe not intentionally or explicitly they're not thinking about that. No, maybe they might be. But their performance just kind of just tails off a little bit sometimes. A little bit more socializing around the organization, time off from tasks, and just a little bit more relaxed. Or they might try to alter the outcomes, like going to their supervisor and saying, you know, I'm worth more than this, pay me more. Thereby changing the actual perception of it. Notice it is based on perception. Or they could try to restore the psychological equity. A couple of other things they could do, right? They could adjust their perceptions. Well, maybe they're comparing themselves with the wrong person, you know? Maybe, and this is what happened to me one case. Uh, had a, I was CEO of a really small hospital, and uh, really, really small, micro hospital. This worker came and tried to compare her wages, what she was getting at our tiny little hospital, with a hospital that was like four or five times our size in a bigger city. And, whoa, okay, is that an appropriate comparison to make? So we had a conversation. How I handled it was, well, 
okay, we're going to do a salary survey. We're going to purchase by subscription basis a salary survey of healthcare-related jobs and so forth. And, and if your wage, if your wage is outside the range, yeah, I'll bring it back into, I'll bring it into range for you. So whew, we were on the low end of the range, but we were in the range and we just didn't have cash to, you know, be upgrading everybody's salary here and there and, and so forth. Uh, that's a difficult, difficult task for a, a manager to deal with sometimes. They could change the reference person or in some cases if the tension is just too great, they will exit the organization and find a job somewhere else. Excuse me? Well, m maybe they were comparing with their cousin Jim, you know, and well, maybe Jim is doing a completely different kind of job or maybe you know, he's got different, uh, different training or something. Yeah, right, not apples to apples. Right. Yeah, 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 good point. Okay, I'm going to move on to the last one here, goal setting. Locke and Latham's work and others. Goal setting is the most heavily and most consistently validated motivation principle in terms of the history of research on motivation, goal setting has the most research to validate it and it's most consistent across a variety of organizations, across a variety of situations. It turns out that human beings apparently, when they set a goal, they tend to achieve it and they ramp up their performance to get to that goal. Isn't it amazing how God created us? You know, I think this is a reflection on, on our creator God rather than just, you know, the. The, the intelligence of the researchers. In goal setting, there's a paradox. Because the goal, once you set a goal, you suddenly have a discrepancy between per current performance and the desired higher level of performance. Right? If, if, the, if the goal that you set is, uh, is a stretch goal to, to help move your performance up a little higher, you create a discrepancy. But goal setting, curiously enough, also provides the energy, the focus, the mental focus, and the action focus to resolve that discrepancy. It creates and it resolves the discrepancy. Why do goals lead to higher performance? Well, goals require higher performance to achieve higher satisfaction of the worker. Goals entail less ambiguity. There, there is less ambiguity regarding what is good performance. When you set the goal, everybody knows what it is. Goals lead individuals to expend more effort. They stimulate, individ stimulate individuals to persist longer. They activate previously learned skills. They motivate persons to search for task strategies. In other words, new methods to get, the, get to that goal. By the way, which, which type of goal would you prefer, the specific, measurable, or more be, maybe more general? Who would vote for specific, measurable? And how many, how many would prefer the general goals? You know this is a trick question, right? <laughs> okay, I love this. <laughs> Actually, the answer is it really depends. And I'm going to explain to you what, what the depends is right now. 
It depends. Specific goals assume that the worker has knowledge and ability. Okay? If they have those skills and knowledge, and it assumes that, there is a, that the task is relatively simple. When those two things are present, specific measurable goals are the appropriate goals to use. But when the task is complicated, and when the worker lacks the knowledge and the ability, the measurable goal is, is not going to help at all, okay, or very little. You need a more general, in fact, the kind of goal you need is a learning goal, not a performance-specific measurable goal. It's a learning goal. Specific goals require a greater attention to the, to the tasks and so forth. And the biggest need is for sustained focused effort, doing the task that we know how to do, just, just bear down on it and get the performance, okay? Because we're going to measure it, we're going to get the feedback, and we're going to know how well we're doing. But when there's lack of knowledge or ability, if the task is complicated, the biggest need is for better understanding how to do the work. So that should be the focus. Let's discover the best way to do this. And it requires learning new methods of the work. And so that should be the focus. Let's, let's explore here and, and, exp and experiment. And once we figure out, and then we can develop the task, the skills, and capability, and then we can go to the specific measurable goal. Okay. Specific measurable goals draw attention to the end result, whereas the general learning goals focus on discovery. Measurable goals focus on the tasks and the pace of work, but again, measure, uh, learning goals and general goals focus on the discovery of best practices. A specific goal requires working a plan, whereas the general goal says, okay, what should be our plan? Let's make the plan. Okay, then we can work it once we get it all figured out. I'm seeing a question mark on your... Okay. So how do we summarize this? Well, in terms of goal setting, for simple tasks where, where you can learn specific skills related to those tasks, set measurable goals, encourage training, if possible, standardize the activities, set the people to work, and then measure and track performance, give them the feedback, how well they're doing. Where it's a complicated situation, set learning goals for complicated tasks. Encourage exploration, discovery, and learning. Set deadlines. Specify the performance standard. In, in two weeks, we need to have a new way of going about this work. Okay? You can measure that. Did we get it done in two weeks? Did we learn a new way in two weeks? Okay. That's a performance standard. Most of the research says, yeah, we ought to we ought to set challenging goals, not too high, so it's discouraging, and not too low. That's also discouraging and a demotivator. And make sure feedback is part of the equation. Help people understand how they're doing. If it's not inherent in the work itself, provide feedback. That's one of the manager's jobs. Wow, that was a quick trip through both scripture perspective and some, but not all, of contemporary research and so forth. I'm going to do just a few minutes of comparing. Well, the biblical record, the big commitment 
is to God and the bigger community. Because I have a, I have a responsibility to the next generation. And I need to work hard now so that my grandchildren can have a flourishing life. In contemporary research, the commitment is to the firm or the company or perhaps myself. Pretty narrow in focus. In the scriptural perspective, interpersonal relationships are necessary. They are shaped by covenant principles in contemporary world interpersonal relationship are shaped by the economic goals and what's going on here unfortunately is the economic dimension of flourishing life is being separated from the other dimensions of, of flourishing life physical health mental health social harmony and so forth becoming isolated the bigger goal in the scriptural point of view is community shalom the bigger goal in contemporary research is the company's success or the organization's success or maybe my success as a person. The scriptural point of view is focused on what is God interested in? What are other people's interests? And while not forgetting self-interest. Remember that verse from Jeremiah? Pray for the welfare of the city of Babylon, because in that welfare, their welfare, you will have. So their self-interest is not completely forgotten, right? Whereas in most organizations, self-interest is the focus. And the overall purpose uh, of motivation, we could say in the scriptural point of view, is to contribute to the community's flourishing life. Not just for our organization, not just for me and my family, but the larger community. And in contemporary research, the focus is predominantly, not exclusive, but predominantly focus on profit for the firm, making more money, higher status, or more influence. So we can see that the perspective of Scripture is broader and deeper, broader than self or the organization. And this pursuit of shalom, pursuing peace. Because in, when the community experiences shalom, that's when I get to experience it, because I'm part of that community. The faithful believer, seeing it through the lens of Scripture, the faithful believer is motivated towards sustained, diligent effort because of the bigger goal, believed to be within reach, that will affect others outside the organization in the bigger community. And as others in the larger community experience this flourishing life, then I also get the benefit as a result. Well, thank you so much for interacting with me and for being here today. I appreciate it. God bless you in your ministries. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.